Uh, today, we're going to talk about something for me that is, again, uh, if you guys haven't known, we're in Matthew, and Jesus is, we're kind of winding down the life of Jesus, which is uh, a fun time during Christmas to start to wind down the life of Jesus, because normally we're talking about like baby Jesus, and it's totally a different thing, right? Like we're talking about Jesus coming to the earth, as opposed to thinking about Jesus leaving the earth. Um, but, uh, but this passage today is something in my mind that can shape the way that we think entirely. Like how we do life, everything we do can be shaped by this passage. So um, I'm going to read it, and then I'm going to pray, and then we're going we're gonna to kind of talk a little bit about what this means. Uh, that same day, it's Matthew 22, 23 to 33, by the way. And if you guys need a Bible, you can throw your hand up into the air, and uh, one of the ushers will pass you a Bible. Um, yeah, so if, if that's something that you're interested in, that's totally cool. If not, I will trust that your ears are working, which is great. Uh, that same day, the Sadducees, who say that there is no resurrection, came to him with a question. The hymn is Jesus. And they said, Teacher, Moses told us that if a man dies without having children, his brother must marry the widow and raise up offspring for him. Now there were seven brothers among us. The first one married and died, and since he had no children, he left his wife to his brother. The same thing happened to the second and third brother, right on down to the seventh. Finally, the woman died. Now then, at the resurrection, whose wife will she be of the seven, since all of them were married to her? Jesus replied, you are in error, because you do not know the scriptures or the power of God. At the resurrection, people will neither marry nor be given in marriage. They will be like angels in heaven. But about the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what God said to you? I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. When the crowds heard this, they were astonished at his teaching. Um, Jesus, we know that uh, you were on earth in the midst of the story that we're talking about, but that today you sit at the right hand of God in heaven. And Father, we still talk to you because of Jesus. We still seek you because of Jesus and what he did on earth. And rising again, is that's amazing. And so Father, I pray today that we would right now be able to hear what you want to say to us, that I would be able to learn from your word right now. And that no matter where we're at, in this room, that we would be attentive, listening, and ready to hear what you have to say to us. We love you, Jesus. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Death. Like, when I talk about death, I feel like people look at me like, oh, I'm about to go numb and glaze over later. Um, and I just think to myself, like, I understand that. Death feels so final to us. And it feels like morbid and morose and like sad to think about death and to think about what death means and why it exists and all of this stuff. And I think if you've ever been uh, like around it a little bit, I think all of us have at least been around it a little bit, you know that the death of someone around you, someone you're close to or a friend can just rock your world. And then when you think about your own life, and you think about the fact that everything that you're doing right now, living, breathing, talking, thinking, that's going to come to an end. 
that we breathe, walk, do life, eat everything in light of this impending ceiling that is on all of us. And for me to say that, and maybe, maybe it's me, but for me to say that, it feels like I'm like giving you like the saddest thing I could possibly give you. Like I'm like, death, you're welcome, right? That's not something that we feel and think. Typically, when we think about death, we go, oh, man, like that makes me sad. But there's something incredibly important about death and something to remember about death. What you believe about death will dictate how you live your life. What you believe about death will be the thing that causes you to live the way that you do. Because everybody lives in light of this great thing that is happening, this death, this finality, this end. There is nothing more absolute than that. And we know it. So if avoiding it doesn't work, and we know that, because at some point we will be faced with it, either through a loved one. Some of us have experienced this finality in ways that is too painful to even imagine. Kids, your parents, brothers, sisters, husbands, Death feels like it's just the end of everything good. And at least when you think about it, it's like, man, there's confusion, there's pain, there's finality, which for me is the scariest part. If I think about it in the wrong ways and I think about the finality of death, I just kind of like wither and I become like a little kid. I get scared. And this is not new for us as human beings. You guys know that. Human beings, forever, as long as history has been there, we've known death. Every human being that's lived before us has faced this reality. But it was never supposed to happen. This massive thing in every one of our lives right now, death, was never supposed to be a reality. In the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve, the first human beings, the ones who we all come from, according to Genesis, it says that they walked with God perfectly. And and the only thing was that disobedience to God and what he said would bring bring about this great consequence, death. And so... We see the serpent deceive Eve. Eve eats of this tree, and we don't totally understand exactly all the details of all of that. I get that. There's implications there that we don't understand, which is fine. But when she eats that tree, the consequence is death. And now, no matter who you are, no matter how much money you have, no matter how beautiful you are or how ugly you think you are, no matter where you're at in your life, this hangs over. At the time of Jesus, this would have been a massive debate. 
huge debate. You've got two main groups within Judaism. You've got the Pharisees, who we all see, and I'm just going to say right now, the Pharisees, we kind of see them as like the, like, the super staunch, like really stuck-up people. Okay, but you're going to start to see a bit a different picture. And then you've got the Sadducees, who a lot of us just don't really know, know much about. But I want to, the Pharisees were like the most popular group of people. They were kind of like the teachers that everybody followed. All right. But they didn't really have positions of power in the temple or in politics. Right. They weren't very powerful. Those were the Sadducees. The Sadducees were the group of people that had all the power. They were the chief priests. They were a part of this special group of people that governed over the temple. And the Sadducees and Pharisees were always button heads. They were fighting about different things all the time, theological typically, mainly because of this. The Sadducees only believed in the first five books of the Bible, the Torah. Okay. And to the, to the Jewish person, if you guys, you know, newsflash, I don't know if this is a bit like breaking news. Jesus was Jewish. Done. So to the Jewish person and the Jewish scriptures, the first five books were like preeminent and paramount, and they were the biggest deal, the books of Moses. Now, if you spent time in them, you know that the first five books of the Bible are focusing more on the establishment of what God and his kingdom and life will look like on earth. So the main focus of the first five books is you've got this massive nation that's being established from these two people. And so the focus is the start of people and the start of Israel. So the Sadducees kind of camped there. And they were the theological, like, theologian, like, staunch, like, totally aristocrats. They thought they knew everything. They were the smartest. They were the ones who held positions of power. They had money. And they did not believe in life after death. Because they did not adhere to the idea that there was life after death, they lived their life a certain way. They lived as if life didn't really matter what you do. You could do whatever you want. It was eat, drink, be merry, enjoy yourself, live it up. Life ends when you turn back to dust. And the Pharisees... Now, the Pharisees were like the flowy people, all right? According to the Sadducees, the Sadducees were like very strict in how they viewed theology, and the Pharisees were like, God, right? Like they were like the like super like religious people and the spiritual people, and people would have been like, that was, most people followed them, which is probably fairly true of today, right? Like most people follow the ones who are the most charismatic, not necessarily the ones who can cite Greek the best. And so the Pharisees had this massive following. And one of the things that was incredibly important to them was this idea of life after death. And so the debates would rage. Okay? And all the people in Israel would know what these debates were. And so the Sadducees coming to Jesus and asking him this question, it is not because they were curious it's because this is the Trump question in the debate, okay? This is the one that ends it all. It's like, hey, Jesus, figure this out, sucker, right? Like, this is the, what he's saying right now. This is not like a, like a friendly chat between amigos, okay? So the Sadducees come to Jesus with this because the Pharisees believed that 
the dead would rise again and that life would be the exact same. So they believe that the dead, dead people of Israel would rise again, God's chosen people, and it would be the exact same. So if you were a construction worker when you died, guess what you're going to be in the afterlife? That's right, a construction worker. According to the Pharisees, if you were married to someone when you died, you were stuck with them forever, right? That's how the Pharisees approached that, all right? And so because the Pharisees believed it was like a one-for-one, like-for-like, if you owned a home, you would own a home there. If you had friends, you would have friends there. All this other stuff, one-for-one, the Sadducees were like, dude, this is cake. This debate is the easiest debate ever. We're going to throw at you a family heritage question. What about people who get married more than once, Jesus? In the nation of Israel specifically, it was incredibly important that the person's name be passed on, especially the oldest son, because it was kind of an inheritance-based society. We don't understand that entirely. I mean, we kind of get it a little bit, but your inheritance dictated who you were status-wise, how you were financially. Basically, it was your, your identity in that culture. And so it was incredibly important that the name of the oldest son be carried forward. So this question that they ask him gets really, really interesting. And here's what they say. Moses told us, again, the first five books of the Bible, the Torah, Moses is like a main figure in that. If you haven't gotten that yet, welcome to church, okay? Moses is a big deal, and you will learn more about him, I promise. Moses told us that if a man dies without having children, his brother must marry the widow and raise up offspring for him. Now, there were seven brothers among us. The first one married and died, and since he had no children, he left a wife to his brother. The same thing happened to the second and the third brother, right on down to the seventh. Finally, the woman died. Now then... At the resurrection, whose wife will she be of the seven since all were married to her? The Sadducees were the stuck-up aristocrats. They do not come at Jesus respectfully. They come at Jesus as if they're better. Okay? Now, we got a little bit of insight on this dude, Jesus, right? We know a little more than they did about Jesus. We get it. He's God. He knows everything. Bummer move to try to bring something and think you're better than Jesus, right? Bad move. You're going to get shown up, all right? And they don't think that. They think we're the best. We got this thing figured out. First things first. If you were to just read this passage, hopefully you would come away with this idea. Fellas, if a girl's first six husbands die, avoid that like the plague. You'll get it in a second. If the girl's first six husbands die, don't ask her out. Done. I will pray we will move on, all right? This is crazy, all right? It's also not about toxic relationships. Also, they were all of natural causes, right? So, this not being about toxic relationships, all they're trying to do is set up like this insane scenario. Like, this will never happen, so what if it did? And so they're asking him a question just trying to make him look like a fool. 
The great part about this is what Jesus says next, which would have, again, if you understand how the Sadducees come at Jesus, you start to see why Jesus comes at them the way he does. Jesus replied, you are in error because you do not know the scriptures or the power of God. Now, if somebody walked into our community and like walked up to like Bren or me or anybody else who teaches, right? Anybody else who's like thinks they're learned in this and was like, you're an heir and you don't know the power of God. There would be some of us who are a little offended, right? Now I want you to think about someone doing that to the Pope. I want you to think about someone doing that to like someone that this whole group of people looked up to, the chief priests, the people in the Sanhedrin, these are the theologians, the doctorates, these are the ones. There's nobody smarter about theology than these dudes right here. And Jesus looks at him and he's like, well, you're wrong and you don't understand the scriptures or God. Super, not super, just mostly disrespectful from Jesus. Now, he's not trying to be a punk. Again, he's responding to their disrespect. Watch this. At the resurrection, people will neither marry nor be given in marriage. They will be like the angels of heaven. Jesus is brilliant at at a few things, but one thing he's brilliant at is when he's asked a question, he doesn't just answer the question, he answers the person. He has insight into what's going on in that crowd of people. And so he not only responds to the Sadducees, he responds to the Pharisees who were like, just part of the crowd. Now this is like a glimpse, just like the briefest of insights into what life after death will be for those of us who believe in Christ. It is this it will not be the exact same as it is here. Okay? The familial structure that we have today, moms, dads, kids, grandparents, all that stuff, is awesome, and it works so well here and now, but it is only a reflection of the greater family of God. It is not the be-all, end-all. Okay? Your rightful identity for all of eternity, your identity for all of eternity is not daughter, husband, wife, child. It's, it's going to be child of God. Our family will be children and father. And all family here and now is just a reflection of that relationship. In the afterlife, the reflection doesn't need to be there because the reality is. The physical presence of Jesus, the presence of God with us, we no longer will need that reflection. There will be no procreation. That was for earth. That was the original Genesis idea. So because of that, Jesus is telling them, you guys, you don't understand. 
Pharisees, leaders of the people, the spiritual people, you don't get it. Sadducees, the theologians, the aristocrats, you don't get it. The afterlife will still be about this family of God looking up to their father being with him and your identity in Christ, who you are as a child, taken care of, loved, appreciated, guided. All of those things will be the reality in the afterlife. Now, the great part about what Jesus does here is he answers them from Exodus 3, 6 which is a part of the first five books of the Bible. He's literally taking the original scriptures and he's showing the Sadducees how they were wrong the whole time. Here's how he does it. But at the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what God said to you? I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. He doesn't say, I was the God of Abraham. I was the God of Isaac. I was the God of Jacob. He says, I am the God. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are long dead when Exodus 3 is written. Right there, Jesus answers the question, debate, done. Crowds, thousands of people who have heard this debate hundreds of times looking on would have been like, Jesus could have dropped the mic if he wanted to. He didn't need to. It was just the end of it. Like, the debate is done now. It's over. Go home. Jesus has established there is a resurrection. He even establishes it from the Torah. Sadducees, I'm sorry, you might have money, power, wealth, and all that stuff, but you're wrong. Now, if you're a part of this crowd, well, first of all, if you're a Sadducee, you're not going to be like, you're right. You're so right, Jesus. Oh, man, you got me again. Right? If you're a Sadducee, you're like, no. It's not what it says. And you might walk away because you don't have any answer for that, but you're still not going to give in. But verse 33 says what the mood of the place was. When the crowds heard this, they were astonished at his teaching. Why? Because the crowds just wanted to know what happens when you die. The great thing that hung over their heads their entire life, watching at the time, probably watching children pass away, brothers, sisters, moms, dads, grandparents, they want to know what happens after death. Now, this is where we can fast forward to 2015 and what what we know that Jesus does. This is Wednesday of the final week of Jesus' life. On Friday, Jesus will give up his earthly life. But on Sunday, Jesus will take up life that earth couldn't beat. You and I... Now, according to the scriptures, experience resurrection from the dead 
Because Jesus, our king, the one whom we follow, not only died on the cross to forgive us of sin, but he rose again, beating the only enemy we could never think about defeating, death. Something we miss oftentimes is this. Death is dead. And Jesus expresses that in rising from the dead and saying, come with me. Come with me. You, my people, come with me. Death is dead for you. It's nothing more than a glass ceiling. You can see through it. You know what's coming. You might have to break through, but you're getting through. And this is the great question of every person who's ever lived underneath the idea of death. You and I cannot control it. It is completely out of our hands when it will be, what it will be. But our hope, our hope, our joy, our desire, our belief is that it is not the end. Because of who Jesus is and what he did. So then how do we here and now, again in 2015, how do we view death? And we start in Hebrews 2, verses 14 and 15. Sorry, I'm a little winded. I'm out of shape. Thanksgiving. <laughs> Since the children, that would be us, the children, the people who believe in Christ. Those of us who believe in Christ, we are the children. It's not an offensive term, no matter how old you are. It's a beautiful term because you're a part of the family of God. Since the children have flesh and blood, he, talking about Jesus, too, shared in their humanity. So that by his death, he might break the power of him who holds the power of death, that is the devil, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by the fear of death. Breathe. Fear of death. according to Jesus, can be put to death because of who he is. And it's amazing to think about the fact that he obviously defeated the devil who originally had tempted Eve to sin in the garden, and when she did, the consequence was death. He didn't necessarily immediately just like kill Satan. That wasn't the point. He had to defeat the power. He had to defeat the consequence, death. And he did. John eleven twenty five, Jesus says this, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he may die, he shall live. What we believe about death will dictate how we live our life. If you believe that this is all there is, or if you live that way, meaning that you say you believe something else, but the truth is is that you really just believe that all there, this is all there is. If you believe that this is all there is, then you will live however you want to to get and gain 
here and now. But if you believe that this life is only a reflection of our permanent, forever, endless life with God, and here and now we serve him, love him, part of the kingdom of God, but that when we break through the ceiling that is physical death, we will experience real life. If you believe that, then your life and how you live it, your day-to-day things that you do, the dreams, the hopes that you have will be different. So what are we supposed to do with this? If eternal life is real and Jesus claims that it's real, and if you believe in Jesus or you don't, what should be the response if you do believe in Christ? And, and for this, I look to the Apostle Paul, who happened to be a Pharisee, uh, but then was changed over by God, and, and he becomes a believer, and he says this in, in Philippians 3, and I'm just going to read it. It won't be up on the screen. But whatever were gains to me, I now consider the loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them garbage that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. I want to know Christ, yes, to know the power of his resurrection and participation in his sufferings, becoming like him in death, and so somehow attaining the resurrection from the dead. Not that I have already obtained all of this or have already arrived at my goal, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Brothers and sisters, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it, but one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining to what is ahead, I press on towards the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. If you live as if this is the best you're ever going to do, you're always going to be looking back and wishing you were farther away from the ceiling that is death. But Paul, because he believes in eternal life, says he presses on. He presses on. He looks forward. He doesn't keep his eyes on the past. He doesn't keep his eyes just on what's going on right now. He presses forward. He looks forward. Because he's not looking forward to impending doom. He's looking forward to the day when he will break through the glass and the reflection will be reality. Again, the Apostle Paul in Colossians 3, 1 through 4. Since then, you have been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on earthly things. For you died, and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. So this is where we have to think about this idea. This is where you got to kind of be introspective. What you believe about death, truly believe about death, will dictate how you spend your life.
It is my great pleasure and something that fills me with joy that because of Jesus, the finality is not death for us. But we can declare collectively this because of Christ. Death is dead. Life now reigns. Death is dead. And so what do we do with this? Where do we go from here? Examine your hopes. Look at your life. Examine your hopes. What are you hoping for? What is the place that you're just like, man, I really am hoping for this. Examine your hopes and then re-examine them in light of the idea of death being dead. Look at your life. Begin to ask yourself, what do I hope for? What am I really desiring? The next thing is some of you are probably in the same place that I have been and I can be at times, which is, gosh, I just, I want to believe it so bad. I like hold on to it and I believe it theologically and I have this like idea and I come up and I talk about it in front of people. But sometimes I wrestle like there's still this little part of me that's like scared. And if that's you, I want you to go back to Hebrews 2, where it talks about Jesus saying this. Not only is death dead, but if you want him to, he will come into your heart and kill the fear of death. Meaning this, he will clean that out and ask him, God, please help me to believe this. Help me to see this as the most important thing. Because I can guarantee you right now where you're at, if you're like me, it doesn't always feel like the most important thing. But it is. Death is dead changes everything. It changes everything for us. The last thing is this. If there is something that you know God has been calling you to do and you've thought about it and you've kind of prepared yourself for it, but you haven't jumped into it and you haven't done it, and maybe that's because right now you're too scared of it. If there's any group of people in the world who can begin to get past that fear of death, who can begin to get past some of our senses of safety. If there's something God is calling you to do and you know it, find a group of people or community, maybe you're already in one, tell them about that thing, and then go and do it. It reminds me a little bit of what Jesus had to say back in the Sermon on the Mount. Do not 
worry yourself with your life. Do not make your greatest anxiety and your greatest worry your life. That is never how we were intended to live when God originally made us in the Garden of Eden. But because of something like death, because of something like pain and sin, our greatest anxiety has become, at times, our own safety. And I want to tell you that that doesn't mean that you just fly off the handle. That's why I told you to go tell somebody else, okay? Because it could be something that is really, really not smart and wouldn't help. But if it is, if it's something that you know you need to do, and it is something that God has wanted you to do for a long time, please stop waiting. Physical death is a glass ceiling for us. We will live forever as the children of God. And how you live your life will be dictated by what you believe about death. So in light of that, I'm going to pray and we're going to sing. Jesus, thank you so much for defeating something that I can I, I, I can't even think about defeating in my life on my own. And I pray that each one of us in here would see your power, would recognize your glory in this, that we your greatness, that we would begin to live with joy. And that we would be the type of people who uh, were not sad and necessarily depressed all the time, although for a season that's good, I know. But Lord, we are people who, who can live with joy. That right now we're involved in a reflection of goodness. And later on we will be involved in the perfect reality of it. I'm so excited. And I hope that these people are too. I trust you, Lord, and I love you. And I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.